Uh, and some of you that are beyond baptism, uh, or maybe even before baptism, but uh, we have a membership course that also starts tonight. Um, so that's an important course for us because we're not talking about membership from a standpoint of like a club or anything like that. We are talking about how God has uniquely been active in your life and how God has been active through the life of Living Faith Alliance Church. And we want to see how those two things maybe have paths that cross uh, so we can partner together to continue to spread the gospel. Uh, so that's the aspect of membership that we want to let you know about. So that's uh, starting tonight. Um, so it's open to anybody that would like to come, or even if you've been a member for a while and you feel like, man, I forgot about that, come and get a refresher. It's all right. Um, and then we also have a, an event for women that's coming up. So May 2nd. Yep. <laughs> Steph's here. So, um, so Women's Advance is what it's called. So it's Embracing the Beauty of God's Armor. Uh, I believe that's Mona Morrow's uh, material, correct? Okay, awesome. So uh, May 2nd, so ladies, you can sign up for that uh, as well. And then um, we have a course that's going to be beginning in April uh, called Grief Share. Um, so maybe some of you have heard of that. So I want to make sure that you know that um, grief is a real deal. Uh, walked through a lot of it. Um, and there are others I know that uh, some of you, it's real time right now. Some of you, it's been a while. Uh, but grief work is an important step to take. And so we're going to begin this course uh, on April 19th. Uh, so anybody uh, that's been through any kind of loss of any kind, you're certainly welcome to come to that. So letting you know about that. And then just a reminder here as we move into March, um, we're going to be doing an LFA cleanup day. So this is, this is kind of like home base for us as a church. We want to make sure that we take care of this amazing facility that God has given us. Uh, so we've got some things that have taken some scuff marks and they need some cleaning up. So uh, we need to pitch in as a family and kind of help do that. Make sense? All right, so March 21st from 8 to 12, uh, Pastor George is going to lead us through that. So we're going to dismiss our kids for treasure seekers. So first through third, fourth through fifth grade, you kids are free to go. And then I'd like everybody get your Bibles out, whether that's paper or digital. They're both acceptable here. Uh, and you're going to go to Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, and Greg is going to come teach us from there. Thanks, Chris. Oh, yeah. Here's my phone. left it up here this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be with you. I want to pray for these treasure seekers as they go. Father, I thank you for our students. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have words for them. That you are cultivating their faith. And Jesus, I ask that you would send your spirit to remind them of truth in ways that make sense to their minds, in ways that draw their affections to you. God, they are growing up in a world that has uh, mastered, seemingly mastered the ability to distract them from all things that are of greatest importance. And so, God, the capacity to be entertained is just a fingertip away. And so I pray, Jesus, as they listen to your words, as they hear from you, as, uh, as Angelo opens up the word of God and teaches them, I pray, Jesus, that something miraculous would happen, that they would have an increased affection for you. And so, Jesus, what you do in the treasure seeker's room, would you do in this room? 
that something miraculous would happen, that there would be an increase in our faith, that you would increase our affection, our desire for you. We can't do that on our own. So I pray that your spirit would minister to ours and you'd be glorified, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right. So as you know, uh, there is a difference between someone, uh, between who someone is and what they have done, right? There, there's a difference between those two categories of things. You could look at uh, what someone has done and maybe be interested in what they've done, be fascinated with what they've done, uh, but you don't necessarily know who that person is, right? Those are, those are, two, different, those are two different things. Uh, and I find um, th that there's this connection between people that, that I'm amazed by what they've done, I suddenly want to know more about who they are, right? I try to understand who that person is. Earlier this week, I had this experience. Um, I was, I don't know how I came across this, uh, but I came across uh, Michael Jordan, who was speaking at Kobe Bryant's uh, memorial service, right? As you know, Kobe Bryant, a uh, famous basketball star, uh, was killed in, I believe it was a um, helicopter accident, um, and that was just a couple of weeks ago. And so I came across this, uh, this, this uh, moment where Michael Jordan is speaking at the memorial service. And I wanted to find out what he had to say. Like, I, want, I wanted to listen in. I was like, well, what, is, what does Michael Jordan have to say uh, about Kobe Bryant? And so he spoke about themes of mentoring and themes of being like a, an older brother to Kobe Bryant and, and the way that they would talk on the phone and they would ask each other uh, questions or Kobe Bryant would ask Michael Jordan lots of questions about, about basketball, about being a, uh, being a superstar, about uh, how to navigate business and life after basketball, like all of these sorts of questions. And I'm listening to Michael Jordan talk about his relationship with Kobe Bryant and I ask myself the question, Greg, why do you care? Like, what, why do I care what Michael Jordan thinks about Kobe Bryant? Why, why would I care about that? Like, it's not like, oh, I can learn something because, you know, me and Michael are on similar life paths, right? Like, our lives are nothing like each other, right? What, or I'm not thinking, you know, Michael Jordan has a lot of insight into how to navigate grief, and so I wanna, I wanna hear what Michael Jordan has to say on this issue, like, why do I care what might be the arguably the greatest basketball player ever? Why do, why do I care what he has to say about another great basketball player? I don't know anybody here. I just, I couldn't figure out why do, why do I care? But I think I care because there is a connection between what someone has done and who they are that we as human beings find fascinating. We find it intriguing. Michael Jordan changed the game of basketball. Like as a kid, I remember like the slow-mo dunks and like, wow, can this guy actually fly? Like, like we were, we, my brother and I just loved to, to the, you know, my, our, my room was filled with posters of, of Michael Jordan, not one that I hung up. My brother hung all of them up. Um, but like we were fascinated with what this guy could, what this guy could do. And so when you get interested in what someone can do, you start to be drawn in to ask questions about, well, well who are they? I want, I want to know more about this person. Right? And you would know this, maybe you've read a biography, 
Or maybe on ESPN, they do this thing called 30 for 30, right, where they, they do like a documentary on a person. Maybe you've tuned in to after the Super Bowl and you wanna hear the interviews, right? So you've seen what they've done, but now you wanna hear what do they, what do they think? Or maybe you've Googled a famous person because you wanna find out just some more about them because you're interested in their work. You've seen or you've heard of them and you want to get to know something about who they are. So because Michael Jordan is a great basketball player, why do I care that what he has to say at Kobe Bryant's funeral? I don't know. I just find it very interesting that I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit fascinated. And there seems to be this connection, a fascination that we all have when we see someone who has done great things, we want to know about not only what they've done, but who they are. And I think this fascination, I think this fascination, this sort of intrigue um, has the power to actually change our lives. It has the power to actually change uh, our behavior. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Ponder that one for a second. What comes into our minds when we think about, when we think about God, right? What, that, that thought, that understanding about God is the most important thing about us. Maybe could nuance that a little bit better, but it could be uh, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about what drives our behavior, all right? What leads us to do what it is that we do. And I would contend that knowing and believing God, knowing who God is and what he has done could be the most important thing about you. Like getting to know what is the, what is the character, the nature of God, and, and, and what is he about? What is he doing? That Knowing that, believing that, has the capacity to change your life. And I think it's that increased fascination or interest in God, I think that's what has changed the prophet Habakkuk. We've been tracking with Habakkuk for a few weeks now. Uh, actually, since the beginning of January, we've been studying the prophet Habakkuk. And so we've been looking at this, this prophet who has all these questions, and we're seeing a change come over this prophet. And I think it's because the prophet has had an increased fascination with who God is and what he's done. And that has changed Habakkuk. And we're gonna be studying Habakkuk chapter three, verses three to 16 this morning. And I think it's getting at the heart of this little book, is we're getting to see that Habakkuk has, a, has an increased respect and delight in who God is and what God has done. Listen to Habakkuk here at the end of the passage we're studying. So I'm gonna jump all the way to the end, verse 16. He says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people uh, who invade us. So in light of what are literally events that terrify the prophet, what does he say? I will quietly wait. I mean, you would think after reading those first four lines, it would be, therefore, I am gonna run and scream like crazy to get out of here as quickly as possible. 
right? But instead, the prophet says, I'm going to, I'm going to quietly wait for the day of trouble. And if you've been tracking with our sermon series, this is not like Habakkuk. Habakkuk and being quiet don't seem to go together. Right? Habakkuk often has things he wants to say. But in the face of oncoming trouble, becoming judgment, right, the, the, the body trembling, lips quivering, bones rotting, leg trembling judgment, he says, I'm going to wait quietly. How, do, how does this happen? How does the prophet come to a point of sitting quietly, being seemingly at peace in the middle of such difficult circumstances? That's something we all would like to know, right? In the middle of storm, in the middle of trouble, in the middle of where physiologically you are feeling the pain around you, he says, I'm going to sit quietly. I'm going to wait. And that, go that goes against everything inside of us. How does the prophet come to such a point of peace? And you might be tempted to think, well, you know, that, that's just his personality. He's just, a, he's just a laid back sort of guy. Well, if that's what you think, then you haven't been paying attention to the book so far. Remember, this story is not a relaxed prophet. He is active in his complaints. He is the first in line to register his frustration. You know, he's the guy in class when the teacher says, does anybody have any questions? And you're like, nobody raise your hand. Nobody. He's like, hey, I got six of them, right? Like, he's that guy. He's got questions. He's got, like, things aren't adding up. I'm a little bit frustrated. And God, I need to voice my complaints to you. So you remember the way the story goes? Chapter 1, Habakkuk is frustrated and complains. Why is he frustrated and complaining? Because the wicked in Judah seemingly are prospering and God's not doing anything about it. But God corrects Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans are going to come, and they are going to exercise righteous judgment over my people who are sinning against me. So Habakkuk gets an answer to his question. So what does he do? Well, that spurs on some more questions. So Habakkuk is frustrated again, uh, and he responds to God. He complains again, uh, and he says to God, like, well, you can't raise up the Chaldeans. They're even worse than the Judeans. So you can't raise them up, and they can't be a tool for you. God, how can you, how can you and your holiness use a wicked people to judge your own people? That doesn't make sense. That's his complaint. Well, God again responds in chapter 2, uh, verse um, chapter 2, 2 to 20. And God responds, and he starts to, to lead Habakkuk, and he invites Habakkuk to a new life of faith and starting to believe. And then God comes to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 2, uh, and he replies that, yes, he will bring judgment on the Chaldeans, and yes, Habakkuk needs to grow in his faith. And then God says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let earth, all the earth keep silent before him. Habakkuk, get the hint, right? Like, I'm holy in my temple. I've answered your questions. Now it's time for you to, to listen. Now it's time for you to be quiet before me. And so God has responded. So we've turned now to chapter three, and we found that God has brought the prophet close. I love in the song we were just singing about a good, good father, Right? What's a good father going to do? He's going to keep teaching his sons. 
He's gonna teach, he's gonna continue to lead his children to maturity, and that's exactly what our good father is doing to the prophet Habakkuk. And so as we turn to chapter three last week, uh, and this is what we went through, chapter three, verses one and two, we found that God has brought the prophet close, and the prophet is beginning to be transformed as he has sat and been still before God. He brought his questions, God answered, or God responded to his questions, and the prophet is being changed. And so last week, as, we, as, as what we saw is what was changing in um, Habakkuk the prophet, uh, is that there were two themes that God wanted to teach Habakkuk. If you remember last week's teaching was the two themes were the theme of God's wrath and justice, that's one theme, and then the other theme is God's mercy and grace. And God is teaching Habakkuk that, that the Father always leads with those two twin tools in mind, and he's inviting Habakkuk to that kind of maturity, that new level of understanding. So this week, we wanna go a little bit further in our understanding of the prophet by asking the question, how does someone facing such struggle, such pain that Habakkuk is facing, how do they come to a posture of peace, a posture of rest, a posture of quiet? And the answer, I'll tell you right from the beginning, Right, so how does someone come to that point? The answer is this. Habakkuk comes to understand who God is and what he has done. When we come to walk by faith in who God is and what he has done, it changes everything. When, when we are people that walk by faith, remember that was the theme of, of Habakkuk chapter two, inviting him to walk by faith. What is he walking by faith in? It's in who God is and what God has done. So this is our outline and we're gonna work through this. And, and I talked about this last week. This is actually a song that Habakkuk has written Right? Habakkuk chapter three is this well-processed prayer that is to be used um, in singing. We know that because it it's, uh, gives some, uh, uh, some superscripts and subscripts to give some musical notations. So this is the outline of chapter three. Verse one, there's a superscription of musical instruction. We talked about that last week. Then verse two, there's a petition, there's a request. Do you remember what his petition was? This was in verse two of chapter three. It was in your wrath, remember what? Mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. And then verses three to seven is gonna be a theophany. This is all part of his prayer, the psalm that Habakkuk writes in chapter three. A theophany is, is a declaration of who God is, of God making himself known. And so that's what we're gonna look at in verses three to seven. This is who God is. Then verses eight to 15 is a, is a battle tale. Like it's you know, sitting around the campfire. This is what, this is what God is. Let's recount you know, the work of God. And so uh, this is what God has done. And then verses 16 to 19 is a faith-filled response of the prophet. We're gonna touch a little bit on verse 16. Uh, and then next week, we'll finish the response of the prophet, uh, finishing up in verse 19. And then 19b is a subscription of musical instruction. Uh, the subscription is that this is supposed to be set to stringed instruments. So I'm gonna be getting the guitar and singing the rest of this sermon. You're welcome that I'm not gonna even attempt that. 
Um, so last week I covered verses one and two, right? That was the, the beginning of it. This is his song. And then this week what I wanna look at is the theophany and the battle tale, all because what we're looking at is this fascination with who God is and what he has done and how that sets us on a course for maturity in Jesus, all right? So that's what we're gonna be looking at, uh, that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. So let me first uh, just go into the passage with you and I want you to see uh, how this works itself out. So this is first the theophany, which is about who God is, right? So the first thing we learn is that God came uh, from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, and then it says rest. That's a musical note, uh, notation to just pause right there. So it's significant that God came from Teman and from Mount Paran. What do those represent? Well, these two areas refer to, to where God has come in the past. This actually refers to southern Israel. This was the route by which God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. So what's happening here is Habakkuk is reminding the people, he's setting the backdrop of, hey, don't forget about God's deliverance of his people, right? So it's setting the reminder of God's great rescue um, of the, out of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, so both of these areas are in southern Judah uh, for when the people left Egypt. So right at the beginning here, in order to set the stage of who God is, Habakkuk is reminding them of already of what God has done. And then what's interesting is the name for God here where it says God came from Teman. There's several different names we have for God in the Old Testament. Um, this particular one, uh, El, is used, and it's more rare that this particular instance is used, but it, it is a, a name for God that goes back to the God of creation, right? That God is over all things, right? So uh, right at the beginning of his poem, right at the beginning of his song, as he's emphasizing who God is, he reminds them of God's rescue of leading a million plus people out of Egypt and a reminder that God is the God over all of creation. So right here at the beginning, he's declaring very clearly, this God is great. Like there is greatness to this God. Right, so the first thing we see, uh, the first thing that Habakkuk is, is declaring before the people in the psalm that he's writing is that God is great. And then the second thing we're gonna see is about the glory of God. So his splendor, it covered the heavens and the earth is filled with his praise. Right, God's splendor is over the heavens. Think, think the two things he's talking about here, heavens, earth, right, sky, land, so basically, he's declaring that wherever you go, north, south, east, west, wherever it is, the glory of God is on display. His splendor covers the heavens, his praise uh, over all the earth, right? So he's describing the glory of God. So we learn that God is great, and now we learn that God is glorious. Then the third thing, his brightness was like the light Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. His brightness is like you're seeing this, this powerful God that from his hand there is deliverance. But then it also says that from his, this powerful hand of God, right, it says that there his power is also veiled. 
So we're getting a glimpse of, of the mercy of God. God is so powerful, he can't bring all of his power or we would be utterly destroyed. And that theme comes up often uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament where God withholds some of his power as provision for his people. So who is God? God is a powerful God. He didn't unleash all of it. He is that, he's that powerful. Then we see in verse five, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. What do we learn about God here? We learn that he's a God of judgment. This is an Old Testament theme where pestilence would be a sign of judgment, just like in the 10 plagues that were brought uh, to Egypt. So repeatedly, this is a, a weapon of God's judgment that is used in the Old Testament against his enemies, which would represent that God is a just judge. And then it says this, he looked and shook the nations, then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills, they sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So we saw that God is a God of judgment. Now we see that the mountains and the hills, which are what? They're a symbol of permanence, right? I mean, you, you see a mountain, you see like grandeur, you see power, you see something that on planet Earth would represent strength, right? We don't see people just moving them out of our way. Right? We have to build tunnels just to get through them, or we have to drive around them. Right? These are, these are um, definitions, or these are pictures of things that are, are permanent, yet they appear, um, they appear to, to, to grow smaller. They're scattered. They sink low in light of the eternal presence of God. So if those things you think are permanent, how much more permanent is the reality of God? So it's making a declaration that God is eternal. All right, so let me just review very quickly. I know I'm moving fast here, but this is what the prophet has given us uh, in the first few verses. He says uh, who God is, right? He is great as the one who delivers. He is glorious as the one whose praise is everywhere. He is powerful. He is gracious, he is judge, and he is eternal. Right, so he starts off with his theophany saying, this is, this is who God is. The prophet's saying, this is what I've learned about the character of God. This is, this is what he's like. And so then I want to move you from what he's like to, to what he has done. And when I say what he's done, this isn't just, this is what God's able to do. He's referencing, this is what God did, right? You, you, hey, guys, you remember this when, and he's doing it in poetic form, so the language might not seem as accessible as, accessible as like a history text, but I want you to let the imagery remind you of the stories. Particularly, we already have the framework of the Exodus, right? So remember the Exodus story. So in the Exodus story, God is going to deliver them through the Red Sea, right? God's going to deliver them through the Jordan River. God's going to make provision for his people. God is going to deliver them from enemies, right? Enemies of, of, of starvation, enemies of thirst, literal armies that would come against them. So I just want to read to you this passage, and I, and I want you to, to, to allow the story of God to be a reminder as we read the poetry of, of Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, and we're going to go 8 through 16. 
He's gonna start off asking some rhetorical questions uh, because God used certain tools to accomplish his purposes. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Then you just rest. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands high. The sun and the moon, they stood still in their place. Remember that story? At the light of your hours, at the light of your arrows, they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Right, he, he, he set the nations that were, that were ready to receive his judgment. He swept them out before his people. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of mighty waters. You remember clearly, you see the picture of, of the Red Sea crossing and then the army of Pharaoh coming against God's people and then God delivering his people through the closing of the sea on the horses. So, this is Israel's like triumphant past. This is the victory of what God had delivered earlier. It's what he does because it's who he is. So Habakkuk has received his answer. God refuses to stand by idly and watch human injustice just, just win. God crosses time and space to enter into the messiness of human existence to save those who are victimized by sin. That's what, that's what God has done throughout history. That's what's being recounted here. And verses eight to 16 describe in poetic form the victory of God over Israel's enemies. And this was not the first time God did it. It wouldn't be the last time that God would do it when he brought judgment to the Chaldeans. This is what God does because this is who God is. Let me show you this out of Exodus chapter 15. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory. You're working wonders. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the stuff God is going to do. Why? Because this is who God is. So who he is and what he has done is the foundation for a life of faith. So now we return back to Habakkuk's original point. It is based on recounting or the prophet coming to know this is who God is, this is what he's done. So that's why in verse 16 he says, I hear and my body trembles. Like I know that the judgment of God is coming. It is intimidating. It is scary. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. 
to come upon a people who invaded us. Why can he quietly wait? Because he knows, he knows, <laughs> he knows who God is and he knows what God will do. Who God is is one who uh, is from everlasting, who's one who is just. He's one who is merciful. He's one who is great. He's one who's glorious. And what God does is based on that, he rescues his people time and time again. And even though it's gonna get really scary really quick, I can wait quietly because I know who God is and I know what he does. What comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? So for Habakkuk, what, what comes into Habakkuk's mind when he thinks about God was the most important thing about him coming to that position of faith because he knows who God is and what God will do. This is a profound and very practical point what comes to mind when you think about God? What comes to mind when you, in facing your situations, in facing your puzzles, in facing your uh, points of, of fear like Habakkuk did, what comes to your mind about God? Because what comes to your mind is going to have the capacity to change everything. Does what come to your mind is that God is just? that God is powerful, that God is great, that God is glorious, that God is everlasting? Does that, does that come to your mind? Or does the fact of, of God seems absent? God, God seems to be ignoring your pain. God, God seems to be opposing you, right? It, what comes to your mind when you think about God is going to determine how you move through the struggle and the circumstances that are in front of you. Now, I've shared this tool with you before, and I find it incredibly helpful, and I actually think it's, it, it really captures what happened in this passage, so I'm gonna share it with you again. Uh, you've heard it called, I, I call it the, the uh, true gospel, false gospel paradigm. You might hear the gospel ladder, right? So, so here's the way that this works, right? So it starts with, it starts with the, the, um, the, the basis is this coming out of Romans chapter one, that sin is always, always a result of a lack of faith, a rejection of something that is true about God. And then after we reject what is true about God, right, after we do that, we embrace something that is a lie, something that is a false savior, what the Old Testament would call an idol, and so the false gospel narrative always starts with us. It always starts with what we do, right? We have to rescue, we have to save ourselves. So the false gospel ladder starts right here, right? We're confronted, we, we just think of Habakkuk's situation, right? He's facing struggle, he's facing pain. Think about any of your situations. You're facing difficulty, you're facing some sort of vulnerability. Where do we turn first? Well, we turn towards our Savior, which is often ourselves. So we turn to, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to fix this? What do I have to do to get myself out of it? Right? And then what we do is, depending on how successful we are, determines our sense of identity. Right? Like, so if we get it right, then, oh, I'm okay. 
But if we can't fix the situation, well, what's the, what's the you know, what, what value do I have anyway? Right? So it starts with what we do, and then the false gospel narrative then determines who we are based on what we do. And then track this part. Where does God come into the false gospel narrative? Well, what we do is we ask God to help us be successful in what we do because what we do determines who we are. So we will often get really angry with God. Like, why isn't God showing up? I asked God to help me on this test. And if I don't get this, if I don't do well on this test, then I'm an idiot, then I'm a failure, then my life doesn't have purpose, right? And so God doesn't give us an A on our test and we determine then who God is based on what we perceive God has done or not done. You see that? That's the false gospel narrative, okay? The true gospel narrative works the complete opposite direction. The true gospel narrative starts with who God is. And then based on who God is, what does God do? And then what God does determines who I am. And then based on who I am, now I act, now I move. See, that's the true gospel. It starts with God, and then God does something, and what God does and who God is determines who I am. And based on my identity as his child, as his son, therefore I do. Changes everything. Right? Think of the, the fear that goes into I do when what I do determines what I am. If I don't get it right, I don't have value. This way, what is my value based on? It's based on God. Did you know that? Your value and your worth is not contingent on your behavior. Your value and your worth is contingent upon the character of God. And out of the character of God, who he is leads to what he does. And God loves you. He died for you. He came to rescue you. So what you believe about God is the most important thing about you, right? Because if I believe God is waiting for me to get it right in order for him to affirm his love for me, that is a scary way to live. God showed his love towards us. God showed his love towards us in that while, so it's his love, God is love. He showed his love towards us, right? Our identity was we were sinners. Christ died for us, right? So who he is led to what he would do, which would determine then who I am. This is the true gospel paradigm for all Christians, and it's how we grow in maturity. So when you see a sin problem in your life, right, when you look down here and you see an I do that isn't consistent with who God is, your problem is, is you have a false gospel paradigm at work because you are doing something to try and secure something here. It's a false gospel, Right? Because who God is, what God does, determines who we are, that will always lead to righteousness expressed in your life. That's the way faith is set up. So the false gospel will say we see it, 
we feel a need, we move to fix it. So Habakkuk's journey, Habakkuk's journey has been one where he has been reoriented. We never have a point where God says Habakkuk has sinned, right? I'm not, and I'm not saying that, but I am saying Habakkuk has moved to maturity, right? And the maturity that Habakkuk has moved towards is demonstrated in the fact that what he's talking about is, oh, I know who God is. I know what God does. Therefore, what I do is I can sit quietly now. See that? I mean, could you imagine in the storms of your life to be able to say, okay, this is what's going on right now, but I know who God is, I know what God does, and based on that, I know who I am. Now, I can rest. I can be at peace. All right, I want to, uh, I want to have some people come up and help me here. Um, there's some people that, uh, that God has been taking on a journey of faith, um, so Diego's going to bring them up here. And they're people that specifically went through the College of Prayer weekend that we had last weekend. Um, and they are on a faith journey, and God has been showing them some things, right? So since we're talking about Habakkuk and Habakkuk's journey of faith to maturity, I wanted to give some, uh, some, some real-life uh, examples of people journeying towards maturity uh, in our church context, all right? So where's your people, Diego? You by yourself? Nope. All right. I'm going to invite Ali, Nardone, Linda Couch, and Anya White. These three friends uh, participated in the College of Prayer Weekend that we had last week, Friday and Saturday. And it was so neat because uh, the whole theme was around Lord teach us to pray. So the question... Um, Wow, I got two Alice. That's great. Sure. <laughs> Thank you, Ali. I like that heart, that attitude. If you hear your name. How many other Alice are here in the room? I want all the Alice up here. <laughs> So uh, they're going to share with us um, how the College of Prayer Weekend uh, enrich their relationship with, with God the Father. And it's so appropriate that we're talking about who God is and what God does, because that's what they're going to do. They're going to tell us about what God has done. Allie, can we start with you? Okay, so the College of Prayer helped me equip my relationship with God by teaching me how to identify different areas of my life that were really, like, affecting my prayer life and affecting my relationship with God. Um, I've always struggled to understand how or why God really loves me. And through the College of Prayer, I learned that my prayer life will always be affected if I don't truly know that I am fully loved by God. Mm. We will never be able to approach God confidently in prayer if we don't first believe that he's our loving father. Um, and so a friend of mine that was actually here at the College of Prayer said to me, wow, God sure did wreck you this weekend. <laughs> and honestly, I can't think of a better or more accurate way to describe it. Um, I was just so overwhelmed by God's unconditional love that filled this sanctuary throughout the entire weekend. Um, and I really left here knowing that God loved me more than I could ever imagine. 
and I can approach him knowing that his love for me will never end. And for that, my prayer life and my relationship with God have forever been changed. Wow, can we thank the Lord for that? That is, that is beautiful. Thank you, Ali, for sharing out of that overflow of what God is doing in your life. This is Linda. Linda, same question, so you can tell us your thoughts. Okay. God is good. Uh, over the past several months, I've been thinking about a verse I saw in Ephesians 3.19 where I think the apostle was praying for the Ephesians that they would be able to know the love of God experientially for themselves so they could receive the fullness of God. And there's been a pluck for me. And I think in the course of this weekend, even before I started, the Lord showed me something in my life, early teens, where I built up walls. Protect myself, I thought. But it blocked out love from people, and it blocked out the love of God. And at the College of Prayer, they talk about healing broken love receptors. And I got prayer. And then I learned more about a spirit of orphan where you feel abandoned or somehow all that good stuff is inaccessible to you. You're somehow excluded. There was prayer. And I am set free of that. I knew that as a believer, I was supposed to have love, joy, and peace, and now I do. So that is what the College of Prayer has done, changed me forever, and I, I thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> so significant for me to hear Linda share even that today. Anya? Um... So the College of Prayer um, was really impactful for me because it reminded me of the power of worship and praise whenever I seek the Father um, and how it opens me to hear and see him more clearly. And then he shows me parts of myself that I didn't know were there. Um, and God was so gracious even leading up to the College of Prayer by just like showing me lies that I believed about myself and then consequently what I believed about him because of those lies that he wasn't powerful enough to overcome or to save or to deliver or heal. Um, but there was no condemnation there. It was just opportunity for me to renounce those things and receive more of him because if I didn't renounce them, then there was no space for him to occupy um, and so in that, I've been able, as Linda was saying, to receive love from God in a way that I never did before, and to even see how um, other people are just conduits of God's love, because that's really, really hard <laughs> for me in the past to receive love from other people, because I didn't identify it as that. I struggled a lot with, rede with rejection, so a lot, of, a lot of those things I wasn't able to, to really receive openly. Um, so the College of Prayer has been, it was amazing, and it has 
even equipped me now being able to receive love from other people to function better in relationships and in community, which is super cool. <laughs> thank you, Ali. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Anya. Thanks, you. Um, so uh, hopefully you're seeing very clearly uh, the, the true gospel paradigm. Right? You, see, you see the gospel ladder at work there. So if we said to, uh, to, to, to Ali, um, you need to learn to pray better. You need to pray better. If we said to Linda, uh, Linda, you need to be more free in God. Uh, if we said to Anya, you need to, you need to love better in community, right? we would just be piling on burdens for them. Right? And we do that to ourselves all the time. If I could just do, if I could pray better, if I could be more free in God, if I could love better in community, therefore then I would attain something that I currently don't have, and therefore God might love me more, delight in me more. Their stories were the exact opposite, right? Even Anya was, God revealed some lies that I was already believing even before I got there. Right? For, for Linda, it was, I, I learned about the, 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 the being a, a child of God, an adopted child of God that came against a lie of an orphan spirit. Right? Or Allie saying, it was once I realized the Father's love for me, then I was free to dialogue with him in prayer. Right? So who God is and what he's done is the most important thing about your faith journey. It's the most important thing about you having faith awakened in you in the middle of the storms, in the storms of your life. Now, your story won't be like Habakkuk, which, by the way, by the way, we got Habakkuk's background, right? We spent weeks studying about the, the context that Habakkuk was in. You didn't get to hear Allie's context or Linda's context or Anya's context to, to understand some of the struggle that they walked to, to come to that place of freedom, just like we did get some insight into Habakkuk's life, into some of Habakkuk's journey, right, that led him to this place of uh, this faith journey, this new position of maturity before God. But uh, all of our stories are different, right? All of our backgrounds, all of our contexts are different, but there is something the same about every single one. And that's that all of us face puzzles face pain, face struggles, and it's in that struggle that what the Father lovingly wants to do is to awaken us to new levels of maturity, where he would awaken us to know more of who he is and what he's done. Let me just end with this story. I love this story out of Mark chapter 6. Jesus is uh, interacting with a group of professional fishermen, and they happen to be on the Sea of Galilee, and this hurricane comes in, comes down from the north, and they are terrified. Now, if you put Greg out on the Sea of Galilee and the winds come up, I'm going to get a little bit nervous. You know why? I know nothing about sailing. I know nothing about being out on boats. I even got like a little inner ear problem makes me a little bit dizzy, Okay just being honest. But these guys are professional fishermen. They've been there before, and they're terrified, right? So that should tell you something about the storm that they're facing. It's a real storm, and there is legitimate reasons for them to be concerned, right? 
And so they see Jesus and they cry out for him. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter six. And immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. In the middle of their storm, what does he say? Guys, it's just a little storm. No, they had legitimate reason for concern. What does Jesus say? It is I. This is who I am. And you guys know me. Because of who I am, you know what I could do. It is I, don't be afraid. Your storm is big, I am greater. Your storm is significant, I am more so. It is I, don't be afraid. And what's cool is then, what does he do? He doesn't say, it is I, calm the storm and walk, storm off angry. He gets into the boat with them. And then the wind ceases. They're utterly astounded. And then it says this, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart were hardened. It's an interesting way for Mark to end the story. But the story of the loaves is that Jesus, just before this storm, had miraculously created bread out of nothing. He had showed them that he was God, but they had missed the message. He had said, God, this is, guys, this is who I am, this is what I do, but they missed it. So what does Jesus do when they miss it? Tells them again. Takes them to another place where they're now facing a different type of storm, a different type of puzzle. And in that place, he says, this is I, don't be afraid. Friends, our God loves you so much that he is in relentless pursuit of you to awaken you to know who he is and what he does because that is the essence of faith. And your life from now until eternity will be marked by this same pursuit. It's what God did with Habakkuk. It's what God did with the disciples. It's what God did with the, these ladies that were up here. It's what God is doing in your life right now, guaranteed. He is wanting to awaken in you a knowledge of who he is and what he does. All right. Uh, I want to ask if you'd stand up. Isai and the team is going to lead us in a song. You're welcome to sing along. It's a beautiful song. You're welcome to join in. But I think what I would prefer that you do is to give yourself some space to ask this question, God, what are the puzzles, what are the storms, what are the circumstances that I'm currently in that you are leveraging, you are leading me through in order that I might learn who you are and what it is that you do? How are you wanting to grow my faith in this season of life?